Welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast, the official podcast of SCAF, the Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey. My name is Dave Rosales, and today my guest is Coach Peter Twist. Now, I don't think Coach Twist needs much of an introduction, but in case you need a little bit of what he's done, he's the author of 1,200 papers, 20 books, 44 DVDs, 22 certification courses. He was uh, an NHL strength coach for 11 years with the Vancouver Canucks, one of the first ones, which we talked a little bit about. These days, he's the director of education for Twist University, and we also talk a little about that. I mean, I don't, I don't really think he needs much of an introduction. I'm sure pretty much all of us know him. As I mentioned to Coach Twist before we started recording, I read his book, one of his books, one of his 20-ish books, when I was like 10 years old. It was a book my dad gave to me, and so yeah, this was a this was a cool episode. I, we took a ton of different directions. We talked about his early days in Vancouver. Uh, mentorship, who he's learned from, movement, so all, all kinds of broad health overall, the importance of that. There are about 100 questions I have unanswered, but this this is a really fun interview, very wide-ranging. So I'm going to stop rambling, and without further ado, here is Coach Peter Twist. Coach Twist, welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time, coming on. We're on a big time zone difference here, so we finally made finally made the scheduling work. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know the theme. It's uh, whatever it takes. So I, w- I would have done this at two, three in the morning and uh, mashed it with any time zone. <laughs> but thank you for syncing it up. Good teamwork, David. And it's an honor to be on here with you. Absolutely. We're gonna have some throwback content today because <laughs> your name comes up all the time. Someone was mentioning like, oh, you know, I was I was one of the first ranked coaches. Oh yeah, but but uh, in the NHL. Oh, but besides Pete Twist, Pete Twist. He's 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 been around forever. So I want to hear maybe set some context about what your first job as a strength in, at, in strength conditioning and performance and anything related to this field. Like, where were you? What were you doing? How did you get it? Yeah, I, I guess well, the step one, two, three, and that's always interesting. I always love hearing about people's paths and behind the scenes, but um, actually the game has changed a lot. Strength and condition has changed a lot, but originally in strength and conditioning, the original strength and conditioning coaches were head coaches of individual sports. And if you were the head track and field coach, you've got a hundred meter sprint there after race tactics to the mechanics. Well, the head coach has them in the weight room and, you know, working on their power and strength and so on. Same, same for rowing, same for all the individual sports. Of course, in the U S there was more mature strength and conditioning system in the collegiate sport uh, system that started in football and individual sports and then built out. Hockey was later. Most sports were later. Canada was later. So it wasn't a mature field at the time. But I came out, did my undergrad in McMaster in Ontario, and then came out to uh, do a master's in sports science with the goal of coaching, being a head coach of ice hockey. But I went to coaching conferences for head coaches in the U.S., and some of the lectures were on strength and conditioning. And that really grabbed my, grabbed my attention to develop the, the individual player development. So pivoted, I did get a position at, uh, at University of British Columbia, strength and conditioning coach, and then the head strength and conditioning coach. That pathway went into Vancouver Canucks. And, you know, I, I happened to be specialized for that position. If it was the NBA, I wasn't the best guy. If it was the NFL, I wasn't the best guy. But I, I played hockey. I could go on the ice with the players. I wrote a book during my master's on physiology of ice hockey, did research on ice hockey, 
um, was the strength and conditioning coach at the university with ice hockey. Um, so it was just a good fit uh, at that time to step in. And, and of course, you real quickly, you need um, Vancouver Canucks also had Pat Quinn, you know, the big, strong, uh, gracious, uh, tough Irishman who was with Philly before. And they were one of the first teams to implement physiological testing. And he hired George McPhee. George McPhee won the Hobie Baker Award playing hockey in the U.S. So he's familiar with the better uh, strength and conditioning system in the, in the U.S. colleges. So they, they were already bought in and, and looking for that. So it was the right management and leadership as well to make it happen. So it sounds like you've always been very involved, always been very involved in health performance. I want to pause on something that stuck out to me. You just said is how you were researching and writing. Like you, you wrote a book even before this is, you know, this was decades ago now. Uh, how did researching and writing help you become a better strength coach? Especially maybe you can set a time frame for like what you were in, maybe what decade were in and how old were you as well? Yeah, I was in my, uh, my mid to late twenties and, um, it's right. Oh my goodness. Right. I think writing is one of the best ways to learn because then it's a packaging and systemization of our training beliefs and our coaching philosophy and how we choose to, how we're capable of seeing all of the many sciences and how they integrate and speak to each other uh, during exercise and sport. And, it, and it's really a packaging of our exercise guidelines and our principles and our methodology. So it really writing, if one goes for that, just for yourself to put a compendium of 100, 200 pages of your whole training system, it helps you bake it, it confirms uh, your philosophies and methods. And then you have a platform there that's a little bit more consistency per athlete that you can build from. But te both teaching and writing uh, are two of the best ways to learn and grow. Yeah, those are great. I'm going to butcher the exact phrasing, but you don't really know something unless unless you can teach it. Like you don't actually know something unless you can teach it. And I think that also, I'm a, I'm a writer as well. And when you write something, you realize that a lot of times the ideas you have weren't actually as sharp as you thought they were. And it makes you, and it makes you sharpen your beliefs and what you're actually thinking. I think with strength conditioning, that's a perfect example, because if you think you have a training philosophy, but you can't put it into, into words, it's like, maybe you don't. Oh, very correct. And I think as a teacher and building off your point, David, it's our ability to teach it, but also simplify it, you know, can we make complex simple? There's always this amazingness with technology, and it's certainly one way that the game has improved. There's only one machine in the world not fully understood by anyone, and that's the human body and brain. So we can stay curious. I believe if something functions in the brain or the body, there's going to be a way to improve it. And if it functions, it exists for a reason, we should pay attention to it. Um, you know, such as our fascial system communicates at 700 miles per hour. That's that's like a flashing billboard, giant billboard saying, pay attention to me, get curious. One, it wouldn't, if it, it communicates with the muscles and brains at 700 miles per hour, that's extraordinary. And if it didn't, uh, if it wasn't important, it wouldn't exist. Or maybe it would do it at five miles per hour, just get around to it. So when you know 700 miles per hour, that function is urgent to the performance of our body. And then it sort of puts a laser focus on it. Well, let's study that. 
see if we can reverse engineer to some simple guidelines that would help uh, honor that and leverage it towards improved performance or tissue integrity, things like that. So our ability to take complex and make it simple and then just say, you know, three words or three guidelines to our athlete, but in doing so, it's honoring all of the sciences. Um, that's the role of the teacher for sure. Absolutely. It's not just information. It's also presentation. And as, as coaches, we need to really have both. We need to, we need to know what we're talking about and also know how to present it. Yeah. I want to go back to, okay. That first job with the Canucks, because this point in time, being an NHL strength coach, wasn't, there was no, maybe there wasn't even like a job listing. It might've been like a job that you had created. So how did, how did maybe you pitch being like strength conditioning to the, to the Canucks, or maybe it was the right, you mentioned like Pat Quinn, people who are in the right places to, to see the value in that. But how, how did that come to be with the Canucks? I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. And one, I'll, I'll just let uh, not very many people know that uh, prior to uh, receiving that position, but more so after, I really believe in contributing to our field. So thank you all you're doing. Thank you, your teammates are doing with the association to unify everyone and keep uh, helping everyone improve and grow. That's outstanding. And uh, what I continued to do was a proposal just to try and always build the field. I think I really believe in leading with that. You know, our opportunities are going to follow if we chip in and try and lead and contribute to the field. And so where, where are we volunteering? Where are we speaking? Where are we educating? Who are we helping? Our opportunities will follow. And so in this, I sent, I sent all the NHL teams and the GMs at the time uh, a proposal for the strength and conditioning coach position. Did not even, wasn't including my resume, wasn't pitching for a job, just making them aware this is the strength and conditioning position. This is what it is. I included a cost benefits analysis, which we all know as coaches, you take one of your premier players and, and keep them healthier an extra three games during the season. You've just paid for your salary and investment. So pretty easy cost-benefit analysis. Um, so those type of things to try and help create opportunities for others uh, in the field and go that way. The, Van the Vancouver Canucks position, uh, when I started, it was a, a really interesting time. You know, it, it, it was a time they wanted me labeled as a coach, not a trainer. They didn't want me socializing with the players. I wasn't allowed to have a drink with the players. This was a time we're going in, like, this is not the time to be buddy, buddy. This is time to get this position implemented. Because uh, a lot of the players at the time thought it was mainly, uh, not once we did it and built a relationship, but if they're doing extra training off place, this is some kind of a punishment you know, or it's a way to evaluate them and put them in the doghouse. They just had all these nefarious views of it. Gosh, there was one, uh, I remember one athlete, he was just so fit, strong, and so into everything, like a, a strength and conditioning coach's best athlete, and even, you know, some nutrition supplementation that's so benign today, but seemed a little foreign at the time. He got abused by the other players. You know, because he was too into it. He was too keen. He was too fit and strong. Um, he was too powerful. He was too healthy. And he was living that life. And, the other, you know, the other guys didn't appreciate it. So it was a, it was a foreign environment. I always, um, look, I, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to uh, receive that opportunity. I'm so grateful to have worked within ice hockey. 
let alone the NHL, within hockey at any level, coaching at any level. But in the NHL, I'm really grateful. I've got so many amazing memories, experiences, growth. I'm very appreciative. I, I, do, I do look at the NHL. There's usually a champion of innovation in the management or something, but then they're a little bit resistant in fully exploiting all the innovation. So it's kind of like, you know, let's hurry up and progress, but slow down. And then, you know, let's, let's just face it. We've got a bunch of uh, alpha male athletes and coaches and so on. So it's kind of like functional dysfunction in there. And you're trying to create excellence in that environment, right? So um, it was a great time to develop my coaching toolbox and motivation toolbox because guys weren't used to doing this. And so how do I get buy-in and what might work on me might not work on you, David, and might not work on someone who's listening. So really gave me the opportunity to expand my communication and motivation to have players buy in for really reasons that were uh, important to them. Yeah, I think this is definitely something that comes up all the time on the podcast is, is kind of the art of coaching. There's no way to develop it without actually just coaching and getting the reps. It's like, it's like, you can't memorize being a good coach. Almost like you can't. I talked with, with uh, Stefan Gervais about language learning in our last podcast. And we talked about, you can't memorize a language and coaching is a lot like that it just requires pattern recognition. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so that must have been a great podcast. He's a, uh, he's a great human and a great coach. Yeah, actually, that's actually a perfect segue because, um, so I asked sorry, our Instagram followers for questions. And, and Jerv said, ask him how much he loved having me work for him. And <laughs> I want to well, segue I'll into that. that authentically. And I absolutely uh, 10 out of 10 loved it because he brought enthusiasm, passion, work ethic, hockey on ice, off ice, but was equally uh, passionate, I think, about sport and fitness. As Trevor Linden once told me, it's difficult to be a high performance athlete consistently with a long career until you make fitness and health part of your lifestyle. Once it becomes part of your lifestyle and your social group outside of hockey, you know, then, then you're going to be able to stay at your, uh, your best and enjoy that process. Um, otherwise, it's going to be a task that you're required to do uh, to be a, a team member or to try and, you know, improve and elongate your career and so on. So Jerv's, uh, you know, he brought equal passion for both and high, high IQ or EQ uh, as well. IQ, but high EQ, which I think is an area that's underdeveloped uh, today a little bit in society as a whole, but uh, really high EQ. So it was certainly fun camaraderie and stuff. So that's pretty, pretty glowing marks on there. It's very obvious in the way that, that he talks about it. And he was like, oh, I got to link you. I got to link you with, with Coach Pete Twist that, you know, he, he definitely views you as, as a mentor figure. And I, I'm wondering if, if there are coaches or, or players, older, younger, in any role who, when you were coming up as a coach, who, who you viewed as a mentor figure and what you learned from them. From a coach standpoint, you know, at the time, I, I've learned from people my whole, I, I learned something from everyone I meet. You know, I hop in a taxi or an Uber anywhere in the world. I ask the driver questions. One, to, you know, be present and show them respect as an equal human. Um, but two, because I, 
all 8 billion people in the world know how to do something I don't. And they know a piece of knowledge that I don't. And so we can learn, you know, we can learn from each other. So my, I'm, an, I'm a big observer. If I'm, in a, if I'm in a meeting or any environment or with a group of coaches or business people, anything, my, my mind is on what we're talking about, but I'm also watching people and observing. And I'm, all, I'm like a student learning all the time, taking two sets of notes, you know? But I think way back at the time, who I was able to learn from more so that, you know, there wasn't a lot of mentors in our roles within ice hockey. So I, I, look, I looked at folks like, you know, your, your Pat Quinn's, you, you know, Pat Quinn would, he would walk into a dressing room and all, all your superstar athletes, he wouldn't even say anything. He'd just walk in and stand there and everyone would quiet down, sit up straight, look him in the eye and listen. And, you know, he, he's pretty tough. So, you know, if, we're, if we need to get in a fight somewhere, we want to be beside Pat. But uh, guys did that because they respected who he was and how he treated them and, and so on, not out of fear. There were some other coaches that were the opposite, you know, that used Machiavellian motivation that would have got them fired in a corporate environment, but helped them rise to the top in hockey. And I look, okay, this is what I'm not going to do. Right. So you learn, oh, here's something to model and here's something I might choose to do differently. Uh, David, who I really learned a lot from was the, the players who were leaders who enjoyed long careers because uh, that was just an, an easier reference point. There weren't a, a lot of coaches per se, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, but your Mark Messier's, your Trevor Linden's, Marcus Naslin's. Uh, even the Sedin twins, Daniel Henrik, uh, as they rose in their career and so on. Um, yeah, some quick, some quick things I, I learned. They were the, the most coachable, the easiest, right? Because they're leaders, so they understand, they understand how to be a cooperative follower when that role requires, to how to be a great teammate so we can cooperate and collaborate. I really watched them. It's like, wow, these are the easiest guys to coach. And well, because they're doing the right things because they know what needs to be done. That also made me realize that everybody in the room is a, a, can influence and impact and lead how we all show up, even the youngest player, youngest coach, our energy, our attitude, our words, we affect everybody. So everyone can lead and impact. But I'll share, I'll share two things that stuck with me that aren't maybe the norm. Um, Dan Hamhus was a defenseman. I, we, I was coaching him when he was 14 at my uh, summer high performance camps. And we set a goal for him to uh, play in the Olympics. That was, his, that was his goal. I helped facilitate that from him. And then as he got in his young pro NHL career, it remained to play in the Olympics. And that happened late in his career. You know, so it really just solidified for me that long-term athlete development. This is a, we're in it for the long game. And so how do we, how do we improve our most tomorrow, but in a way for sustainable performance and graduated improvement over the next 10, 20, 25 years. Also had Hammy came in once he was, uh, I think in seven figures for a salary He'd come down to Vancouver and, um, and come into the camps. And then I found out, he told me he's where his accommodation at that time, he was staying close by at a campsite 
in a tent on this oceanfront campsite just because he enjoyed it. You know, and so that aspect of like some of the guys who are so successful, how grounded they are, you know, how, how human they are, what's really important to them and to retain that. And, and then I, I, I want to share one if I can, um, and I'll turn it back over to you. It was just another, I was an athlete, not a coach. I think as coaches, we need to, and we do believe in people more than they believe in themselves quite often. And it was uh, Jared Burnett who... Uh, Bernie came in and let's just say if guys don't know him, he was from like a tough side of town from a tough upbringing and he, and none of his friends were going anywhere. He had a, based on his DNA, had a long shot to be a pro hockey player. You know, people might look at him at the time and go like, he's not the type of guy you want around. Like he's just going to create trouble. I'm the type of, if someone will show up, they show up early, they stay late, they're polite, they're respectful, they work hard. They have goals and dreams. I'll get behind anyone. We all love coaching a long shot and uh, respecting their heart and spirit. And he, sh he showed up and was just awesome uh, the whole time. But he did rise from a long shot uh, to signing an NHL contract. He set some records for penalty minutes. And um, unfortunately, this uh, re recently this past year, um, he, he passed away and Took his, uh, took his own life, as I know many people have, and especially former athletes and, um, and so on, adjusting to life. But Bernie had this theme, David, and it's, I've carried it with me ever since through my whole career with everyone. There are no limits to what you can achieve. Sorry, the answer is going on a bit, but hopefully this is pertinent for folks. The, uh, and I'm passionate to share it about him and honor him here. I, I, we, I had guys who at the time, man, we were working, uh, we were on the ice in the summer for two and a half hours. And then our, our uh, training was at least two and a half hours. They were big days and big volume. And we're right at the end. I got about 20 NHL players. We've got the Olympic bars upright with 45 pound plates. We're doing like a link system squat to a push, moving explosively. It's like you're in a movie. There's sweat exploding off everyone with every rep they push out. And I just yelled, you like, push the limits, push the limits. And uh, Bernie stopped and set his uh, Olympic bar down and folded his arms defiantly, shaking his head no. He just stopped in the middle of the workout. Never seen this before. So I didn't know what the heck was going on. I turned off the music. I I, I motioned for all the players to come around. We might as well all be in on what's going on. And he just said, Coach Twist, you spent like the last five or six years teaching me that there's no limits to what I can achieve. How can I push the limits if there are no limits? You know, and it was a little bit of a mind play. But that was his moment, stepping up to be a leader, to influence the room and the other players that we can get after it even more. Nobody said a word. Everyone just quietly went over and fist bumped him, walked back to their Olympic bar, picked it up, and we went animal, <laughs> beast mode in there. So that theme, there are no limits to what you can achieve. Um, big believer in that. I doubt if I've met someone on my path that hasn't heard that. 
And we need to wake up each day believing uh, anything's possible and get after it. Thank you so much for sharing that story and, and, and about Bernie as well. That's, there, are, there are no limits to what you can achieve. That's, that's a great quote as well. This, this might be, this is related. It might be an, an odd question, but I'll frame it with, with a story of a, a class I took in college. So I took a, a volcanology class in university and volcanology is the study of volcanoes. And one thing that became clear to me about volcanoes and the way we prepare or don't prepare for them is to, we have the technology to predict volcano eruptions, but what we don't do is think on a long enough time scale. So we have an active volcano and we know it's going to erupt in the next 100 years, but because mm. the way humans are, we have a very, very hard time actually planning for that. And, and it goes back to what you said, and this is where I'm going with this is, is talking about long-term thinking and oh, long-term athlete development. This is such a, such a catchphrase now, such an important thing. And it's, it's definitely gaining steam, but I think it's one thing to, to talk about the importance of long-term fling, thinking and long-term development and another way to, to actually like cultivate that. And there are a lot of steps to that. And an example in sports, it's a challenge because the nature of sports at the highest levels is we need to win games this year, right? A lot of times. So how do you think about maybe it's some, some practical considerations of how you organize your career or, or some philosophical considerations, but how do you think about cultivating that long-term thinking? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a dichotomy, but it's also in synchronicity and that, you know, we need we do need to, like, we need to perform tomorrow. I don't know if you've ever had, like, you get different questions about players. Who was the fastest? What was this guy like? But people will say, you know, how, how good was this player? And I just say, you know, we're, we're every player and you, David, and myself, we're as good as our next game. And so we do need to keep proving ourselves that this is our ability level. This is how we'll show up for ourselves, our teammates and our, our team and so on. We're as good as our next game. So there's a real short-term focus um, on that, but on being our best and making sure we stay in the lineup, you know, we're, uh, et cetera. And we're a contributor, but the, the long-term part uh, with athletes per se, um, I, I have a, a diamond-shaped periodization you know, theoretically, although everything's integrating through the weeks and months and years of the program, this is sort of how we start. This is what we work on to train to improve. Uh, we're in a cognitive state. We can improve. Then we train to gain, to change muscle tissue and so on. And then we're training to perform, which is the bigger engine and speed and power on top of that, more in an automatic brain thing. So I, I tend to use a little bit of schematics and flow charts to show someone their journey. Doesn't mean for the next 20 years, but it does look ahead over this year and how we're gonna approach, maybe we have four cycles in this year. This is how we're approaching the, each cycle, you know, and we're, we're layering some important bricks today that affect some bricks we're gonna add on in the future. So from a physical uh, training standpoint, uh, that's one way that I approach it. That's such a great tactical, just a great tactical coaching cue is if, if we're talking about long-term, long-term with our athletes, like how can we visually show them to it? So I love the idea of like, let's get some, let's get some schematics. Let's get some graphs. Let's get something that athletes can actually see and show them. I really love that a lot. Yeah. What, what have you done that uh, would work well there in getting their buy-in to that or their understanding of it? 
Hmm. I think I go back to something Mike Boyle says a lot, and I try to frame in this context, which is, you know, if you show up for only the summer, let's say you train four days a week for the summer for 10, for 10 weeks, that's 40 workouts a year. But if you show up twice a week, all year round, that's a hundred. So I think there's also some numbers. I think numbers is another strategy you can use. Um, and I mean, there are a thousand metaphors we can use for the importance of consistency. Like, uh, I think another classic one is if you're, if you're driving at night, the headlights, you can only see in front of you a few feet, but if you just keep, keep driving, then eventually yeah. it all, you'll get to your destination. So I think storytelling is a powerful tool for that. I think there are a lot of different metaphors and language tricks as well that we can use to explain this idea of long-term thinking. Visuals are great and numbers are great. So I, I think this is good. As I'm talking, I'm like, oh, this is this is how it's coming together. So if anyone wants to write an article on this, there's like point one, two, three right there to get back to our topic <laughs> about writing. Um, and also goes back to just how important it is to to think about communication and coaching. So thanks for asking that question because it's really made me really made me think as well. Yeah, you you know you've been uh, coaching for a while and and doing some great coaching when uh, when we start to uh, initially forget things good things that we've done. And sometimes our athletes come back or another coach we shared it with and remind us. And it's like, oh, yeah, that was five years ago. That worked well. So I'm sure you're, uh, you get a pretty big toolbox to draw from. Yeah. And obviously, like we said, it's pattern recognition as well. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of years and long-term thinking on our part as coaches and know that that is a process, a process of development. Yeah. Another, yeah. another very related well, I was say just really really yeah. quickly and what i encourage coaches to consider and of course we do need to you know we always need to honor everyone's goals whatever those are and then if it's our athlete and it's in hockey and it's you know junior collegiate pro or any athlete and and outside of that we you know honor their goal and those that are in competitive environments, they do, they do need to show up their best tomorrow. So it's really preparing them for that mentally, emotionally, physically, still, how, how can we accelerate their improvement but not put them at risk? Um, but I always remember I'm, I'm uh, coaching a human being and what's most important to me outside them succeeding at their shorter term goals is I want them to do well 10, 20, 30 years from now and who are they going to be as a friend? Who are they going to be in the community? Who are they going to be as a father? I love it when uh, athletes send me photos. Now they're they've graduated college. They're 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 finished their pro career. They're married. They've got their kids, and they're atop some mountain doing something with their kids. That's a positive environment with good attitude, being physical in nature, being healthy, and. They're sending messages back and sort of philosophical mantras we might have used at the time. Um, that's that's the most meaningful for me that there's that how you affect them for life. Uh, and then short term, what's our uh, acute impact on their sports success? And I think this ties into uh, something you said Trevor Linden told you, which is fitness and health as part of your lifestyle. And I think we're really seeing this shift in strength conditioning, which is now kind of the, the term we're using more is like performance. And really, even underneath that, we're talking a lot more about health. And I know that this is something that you've been ahead of ahead of the curve on and talking about the importance of like a health first approach. So what does that mean to you to have like a health first approach as a coach? 
Well, it's within this perspective, you know, we don't forget we're trying to develop the most skilled and who's the quickest, the fastest, the most creative, uh, who, who can dominate the corners and in front of the net physically, you know, and so there's all, all that aspect in there, but all of us and everyone listening, whatever our ultimate coach philosophy is and whichever science we wish to leverage and bring that into principles and guidelines, um, the, the result of these practices are going to be in part from a performance standpoint uh, related to the robustness of our cellular landscape. And so for sure, every time you watch the Olympics, there's someone who is competing in there uh, who has cancer and doesn't yet know it, right? So it doesn't, and they're imposing our, our cellular landscape um, physiologically and physically, neurally, there's many ways we adapt positively from intense exercise stimulus, but our cells also at the same time only see that as stress. You know, you and I could be on this podcast screaming at each other and or we could be doing intense exercise. Our cells don't really recognize the difference. It's just stress. So it's being really brings an onus on periodization and the ebb and flow. It brings an onus on the culture and the energy and the environment and the emotional support, uh, the mindset and so on to create a, an environment that fosters our health. Uh, our potential for improvement on speed, power, endurance, skill, uh, et cetera, it is rate limited or height limited based on the robustness of our cellular landscape. Being healthier is advantageous. Being less healthy uh, is not. So um, having that aspect in it and then you know, from a healthfulness, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of um, storytelling again. I won't get into the story, but I've had a, a, a health wrinkle that I had to iron out. And so that also changes me. It's like, I don't want to be shy about this week, David. I want to giddy up and let's, let's get some grit and build. Um, but at the same time, how am I doing that in my sleep and my food and, and what type of friends am I associating with and what's their uh, talk? and communication do they have a growth mindset or are they all complainers and etc because long term it's so important for me to be healthy and where i can where we can communicate this with our athletes is no no athlete gets ahead by being on the sidelines injured or unhealthy so I, i'm always the philosophy although i you know i've pushed guys really hard if there's say whatever however we're measuring in units if there's a 10 out of 10 that we could possibly gain with an athlete today, I'll, I'll take the eight. I'll take the eight out of 10, put that in my pocket, put that in his pocket, and we'll show up tomorrow to train another day. I don't never want to be like, just exceed that 10 threshold, trying to, you know, uh, be sh as many short-term, much short-term gains as possible. And that player ends up on the sidelines for six weeks. You know, nobody gains experientially from the, the game or practice or training from that. So there, there's always an awareness of healthfulness, injury prevention and so on, but the cum cumulative effects, like a Michael Boyle, add up the number of training days. Do you know if you look in uh, the Olympic games and you look at the uh, gold, silver, bronze, the medal winners, they have 
more days off, more active recovery times. But if you look at their total training volume and days, they're more because other athletes have had nicks and dings that they've had to miss training days and practice and sit out and so on. So there's that management, that load management. Um, when can we be proactive? When can we rest? So my answer is a little bit long, but it's because it's a, I'm, I'm looking at emotional health, cellular landscape, and also our rest and uh, restoration and recovery to stay in the game off the sidelines. I think if you combine those things, uh, we can uh, guide athletes long-term really well. Yeah, and there's a word you said in that, and please go as long as you want with the answers. The less I talk, the better, is culture, right? If, if, you, if you create a podcast, huh? <laughs> 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 I'm I'm going on a few years on this, so now I think I think I got the hang of it. But uh, is culture is is yeah. creating a a culture of athletes who understand the importance of whatever hydration, nutrition, sleep, all these key things, and and that comes from us as coaches and the whole team. It's an entire cohesive environment. Yeah, that, that, absolutely. The the makeup of that environment very very important and. And to ensure everyone's speaking positively about it. You know, you can't have anybody hanging out on the, around the, the office cooler, so to speak, um, you know, kind of complain, complaining about things or, you know, especially on staff and so on. Everyone's got to be bought in and on the same page and synchronized. So I think there's some good, good work being done current day to, um, to get all the related specialty staffs uh, in, integrated, synchronized, philosophically in practice and so on. And I think that gives athletes a lot of confidence. We've been very philosophical, which I love. Very philosophical conceptual is what I love. And we'll go, we'll go there a little bit more. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the kind of specific exercises you use, um, some specific training philosophies. I want to frame that with an, another word. And we've been talking about word choice a lot, but I think a lot of people, I know I would associate you with in some ways with the word functional, but that word is over the years, over the decades has definitely, I think, lost some of its charm. And I think it can be confusing on what we really mean by that. So my first question is, how did you develop your ideas around what functional training is? And then what do you think? What does that word mean for you that some strength coaches might not associate it with? Such a fascinating conversation. And, and really you get down to, it's a little bit of nomenclature, you know, what do you choose to call something? And then anytime a term gets used more, people have their own variation or understanding of that. And then anything that's in society that goes from, um, sort of specialist to mass consumers, the quality diminishes. Naturally, you know, you're going to have someone who's the best in the world at something, uh, anything, you know, could be playing piano. They share that methodology with 8 billion people. Well, it's not going to sound as nice on there. So we were, we were just very fortunate again, timing wise, there weren't, wasn't a lot of continued education certifications. Uh, the NSCA at the time was primarily, you know, let's get our linear acceleration, linear speed, Olympic lifting, high amplitude plyos, and, you know, mainly floor-based core and abdominals and so on. Pretty, uh, pretty limited. I listen to what head coaches talk about, what they desire in an athlete, how they assess game performance, and they're using different words 
then the strength and conditioning coaches are and and very different than everybody in fitness. So I, I looked at the sport demands, uh, the injury epidemiology, what the co coaches talk about, and then our understanding of all the sports sciences, but more importantly, how they integrate, and then kind of reverse engineer from all that. And what would a methodology, what would an exercise style, how would we move, how would we overload it and so on to honor all of that. And uh, at the time I was fortunate to introduce the uh, world's first three functional training certifications courses. And uh, we actually referred to them, we spoke about functional training, but we referred to them as sport performance because that's the ultimate end goal. But if you look at, no, number one, let me just say, as we're going in, I'll say two things then I'll, and then I'll answer it detailed what I, what, how I refer or what I train when I'm looking at functional training. But number one, it was developed for, when we're looking at strength training, uh, it, it's intended to be a lot harder. Okay? Functional training wasn't intended to be some fluffy thing, uh, moving around light or passing balloons back and forth. And I don't want to demean that because someone could get some kind of benefit from that. There's every, everything can have a benefit. But if you look at, um, say, uh, Olympic lifting and pulling a bar that's close to our body, centered in our midline, et cetera, or dumbbell work and so on, and in a bilateral stance, lifting a 50-pound dumbbell over our head versus maybe a drop step lunge with a slow backhand lateral raise with the same 50 pound dumbbell. Our body on earth inside gravity, because we do exist on gravity, we operate on our feet. All uh, athletic motion has elements of balance, strength, movement, and core. And so I found out when I integrate all four of those, I'm getting measurable results outside of the gym. I'm able to increase brain activity over 1000% more. I'm able to increase muscle activation measurably over 1000% more. And so there's a lot more happening. I believe in uh, neurologically rich uh, exercises that integrate movement skills. So, um, it was funny uh, when I started presenting this at the NSCA and eventually won the president's award from the contribution, but at first not everyone was enthusiastic. Probably about half the, um, these things sound so common today because like, over 20 years have gone by. Um, but you know, your 3D strength, multi-directional movement skills, standing core, combatives, perturbations, a real focus on deceleration before acceleration, et cetera. And those things, uh, things remain apart, but about half of the NSCA crowd uh, would literally be standing up and cheering, having epiphany after epiphany after epiphany. It just made sense. It made sense. And it was so different, differentiated at the time. The other half were pissed off. They had like violent opposition to it because it was contrary to uh, how they're training and apparently we're not allowed to add anything on to do anything differently. So that quickly changed, but it all, here's something to frame up. It's always everything in life is the lens we see through. Something can happen. You and I can look through a lens and we can decide to take it personally and begrudge and get offended, you know, or we can see the same thing and, and it affect us not at all. 
and or we can look through a lens and see it appreciatively and be grateful. Um, the situation doesn't change, just what we, how we see it. But from a, from a framing up standpoint, you know, is, is effective strength training, we can call it strength training or we can call it balance training. And the, the initially the NSCA group that was not on side with this style of strength training and athlete development, they thought that anything with balance was a little bit goofy and it's not something that affects what we do and we can improve. But ironically, uh, they're holding a heavy dumbbell out to their side using their arm as a lever in physics to or overhead as they change their base of support. So they and they would speak to the effectiveness of free weights over machines because of all the stabilizer muscles, et cetera. So they didn't understand that our work with a dumbbell, although we call it strength training and it's imposing a load that affects our muscle tissue and, and, and our energy systems, the effectiveness of it is it's integrated balance. You have to balance that. The more you exploit that, uh, the better results you're gonna get. So. Fast forward today, functional training for me remains. We can call it whatever we want to call it. It's too big of a world. Instagram's too crazy. <laughs> There's too many circus tricks for likes and it like it's out of control. So it doesn't matter what I call it or what I change out in the 8 billion people. There's going to be no control. So for me, functional training is about improvement and skill acquisition and the quality of movement, uh, integrating balance stability, mobility, movement skills, improving each of those individually and then integrating them collectively with whole body strength. So when I lift heavy to hypertrophy muscle and develop strength and then power, I will be integrating balance, mobility, stability and movement skill. And our brain more is built. Our brain is designed, David, more than uh, verbalization for us to communicate, more than cognition for us to think, more than emotion for us to be able to feel, our brain is dominantly designed for movement. That's why when we move, we feel better and can think clear. But when we think, it doesn't improve our fitness, right? So we're made for movement. And so for everything, everything starts with the brain and the software and how does the software run the muscles and fashion skeletal system cohesively unified skillfully and my training must improve the brain as it improves the body or that there's a there's just a gap there that's opportunity so when i when i'm looking at functional training now i i have quantified from my philosophy 30 movement patterns we often hear seven eight ten functional patterns, primal patterns, et cetera. There's 30 patterns that I've identified in athletics. There's eight functions of muscle. Muscle can act in eight different ways, give us more ways to train it. You're probably doing them all now already. It's a quantification, it's a quantification categorization of that. There's eight functions of muscle. I've got 10 methods to overload and hypertrophy muscle load is one. We know that there's nine other ways, uh, 12 strategies for load management. And I use the term load management, not like, you know, say in NHL or NBA, looking at the volume of practice and training and impact. So we're going to rest this star player from managing the load of the volume. Uh, I look at is how are we, how are we handling the load into our body? 
And we do know our perfect position of balance is our optimal position for power, each inch along the rep. So are, are you in that optimal position? Load management, the weight and resistance into onto our body, uh, perpendicular if it's a cable or a resistance band, and then our load management, we're always strength training because if someone weighs 200 pounds and they're stepping into the earth within gravity, that's mass they're handling. So any weight that we're lifting, if we're lifting 200 pounds, we also have our body, which is 200 pounds, that's 400 pounds of load to manage into the ground. I think if you can take care of the top down load management and the ground up load management, you're doing a lot of nice things on the body, keeping exercise and training kind where it needs to be and being able to load up harder uh, where it must be to stimulate improvements. So that's a little bit of functional training and functional training where, as I use that term, we can call it 3D linked uh, multi-directional strength if you want. It's, it's a, the brain and body honoring that. It's staying, it's making sure that we're in a cognitive state. You know, we don't, we, uh, athletes working on their slap shot and skating, they improve their skillfulness when they're in a cognitive state. So functional training as I use it with strength balance movement core should force us to be in a cognitive state where our brain is making computations through millions of sensors and receptors. What the heck is happening? How do I best coordinate, unify, link, and express skill, strength, power? It has to be in a cognitive state. So it's the time to improve. Once you improve, there's a, a bridge there where now we can use that same methodology, overload heavier and hypertrophy build strength. Once we get into sport performance, performance, our brain is in an autonomic or automatic. We know how to do that movement. We can do it skillfully. Now we can, lo we can load up load, speed, power, endurance, uh, build a giant engine for it, and so on. But we're just taking our current ability and then adding in how we can express it with speed, acceleration, power, endurance, and so on. You, you're in a skill acquisition phase to improve, you're in functional training, and there's ways to force athletes to be there so that they keep improving every day. If their brain's not paying attention, they're not getting better. I have a lot of notes. So I have, I have <laughs> notes on neurological rich exercises, on 3D strength, cognitive state, on, on fascial, fascial training from earlier. Um, and I think that a lot of those physiological questions, I think we might save for a, a round two podcast if, if you would be if you'd be open to it at some point. And uh, to kind of wrap us up here, I, I wanted to bring it back to the coaching side and, yeah, and yeah. ask you uh, what you're what you're doing right now with, with Twist Education and, and helping coaches and, and more broadly, anything that you're like really, really thinking about and really excited about right now. Yeah, I'm quick to the point on there. Uh, I'm involved with. Um, uh, some Olympic governments as far as grooming former national athletes uh, who aren't highly employable for diversified things, but they know how to train. They love sport, graduating them uh, through schooling and our education into qualified coaches of sport. And then a lot with young kids on physical literacy and mental well-being. Um, I'm uh, fortunate to be uh, selected by United Nations to work with them on their sustainable development goals that for kids ties in around mental well-being and physical literacy and 
developing um, a positive relationship with healthy uh, attitudes and healthy habits. So that, that's with like young, young kids um, working on a, a mental well-being and a mindset book for American Council on Exercise that'll come out as a course as well. And then uh, I, in April, the pivot for COVID, um, really, really wanting and enjoying to focus on the teaching side of coaching to leave material for more people to benefit. And then they learn what they learn. Some people adopt the whole thing as their practice. Other people just take a few principles and drills and add it in with all of the other excellent learning and knowledge that they already have. But to allow, uh, allow it to contribute, um, I've developed uh, a new um, educational school. We have five specialized learning pathways, four courses in each. So I'm writing 20 certification courses that uh, to help coaches, I really wanted to help coaches that are out in uh, private practice and career outside of professional and collegiate sports uh, to try and springboard their career. You know, society needs knowledgeable, experienced coaches. I believe, uh, I think most governments during the pandemic kind of shut down uh, health and training specialists and coaches and so on. And uh, slandered us a bit as part of the problem to avoid. And uh, I believe uh, that the people listening are the solution to help people have a high quality life and be healthful and be successful at their pursuits and so on. And I, I think the industry needs a bit of a boost and a springboard after the pandemic. And I think we see from when we look at your organization and the professional coaches and the collegiate coaches, they're all specialists. They're expert in those specific areas. So I believe specializing is a great way to elevate someone's ability, elevate their career, and allow them to have a long-term uh, lucrative career where they can stay in it. And then society can start to benefit from their experience, which is uh, everything. So th those are the main, main things I'm involved in now and still loving everything about coaching, training, teaching. And Wow. And you still have time. All I see on Instagram is you going on amazing hikes. So still, <laughs> still having time to, to really enjoy yourself and, and take care of your health as well. Uh, I, absolutely. I, I, I love, uh, I love the mountains for sure. The energy and thanks for noticing that you're welcome to come into Vancouver and we'll go on some good, uh, good hikes. Yeah. I, I'm really appreciative of the energy in there. I find it very positive. It's been great for healing, for mindset, for attitude, um, but also, you know, hey, it's it's like, you know, it's a lot better than a plyometric box. It's a big mount, rugged mountain with peaks and valleys. Uh, so, so it's like a rugged athletic playground and we're getting such variable loading every step. So I'm in there a little bit for mindset, a little bit for social, a little bit for spiritual. Um, I really appreciate the physicality uh, of it. And I don't think I'd be doing so well if I lived somewhere that was flat, you know, I'd, uh, <laughs> this for, kind of forces me out and uh, into there and keep, keeps me, uh, keeps me oriented on that long game, you know, that you're, that you're talking about and really owning the process. We all coach, you know, uh, ultimately I believe athletes need to own the process coaches for ourselves, for our own ability. We own the process, right? Um, quarterback our own health, quarterback our performance and so on and own that. So the mountains for me are symbolism. 
that you know we're we're kind of climbing our way to the top lots of peaks and valleys and uh i, I really really i'm wearing a um it's not not an attractive fashion piece piece of rubber but it's better every day and so this is something i believe in symbols it could be the forest the mountains the, the big towering trees trees could be with the roots you know staying grounded as you rise or it could be you could look at a 200 foot strong tree and go well it's standing tall despite all the storms you can associate any meaning with anything but once you do now when i'm in the forest i see it in that way i get that meaning right away so i'm i'm kind of being self-coached in that way and i think for the coaches and the people listening um utilizing symbolism it is very powerful. I've got one here. I, I think this is uh, this is an easy easy button. I don't know uh, if you show any video or not, but I've got an easy button. So just for context, it is one of the staples classic. That was easy. We all we all know the the advertisement. It is. So anytime I have something that's horrifically hard, like this, truly intense and arduous, and you somehow get it done, as soon as I'm done, that was easy. And it's, a, it's very valuable. I'm always training to make hard easy and to, make, and to get good at doing hard things, get, get comfortable at showing up into hard situations. And then afterwards, make sure associate that that was easy. And you're telling yourself, like, I've got a, I've got a great depth of strength. I handled that. We made it through, right? We're all here today. Whatever we've been through and persevered, we've made it through to here. So it looks like we can. And um, we start to, as soon as we start to figure out that doing hard things is easy, then we can go. And we're green, green lights all the way. <laughs> what a, what a great way to, to bring this all together for this, for this episode one. And, and just last thing, any, any last final thoughts, places where people can reach you, complaints you want to dislodge publicly about the podcast, anything you want. <laughs> Well, you, you can come visit me, uh, Coach Peter Twist, on Instagram. There's there's a whole bunch of folks that are uh, a lot smarter than me and motivated and passionate that, that uh, kind of connect there. You can go on uh, twisteducation.ca. The CA is Canada, twisteducation.ca. If you want to look at, uh, read, just read more about the philosophy and the science uh, or send me a message or look at uh, our courses on there. And I think most of all, I'd like to thank you, David, uh, and, the, and the association for what it's doing and for hosting me on the podcast, but really for all those that are listening, that are coaching, training, or impacting people. You know, I really, uh, I really respect what you're doing and thank you for it. I really encourage you to, uh, to stay in the game and, and keep impacting. Amazing. Coach Twist. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and, and for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much, David. All right, coach. Have a great day. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. As always, you can find links to everything discussed, places to find Coach Twist, and all the stuff we talked about at the official website of, of SCAF, ProHockeyStrength.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk soon.